What a joy it is to worship our great God and open up his word together this morning. Amen. Amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Davidson. I'm the worship leader here at the Hub City Church. And some of you, I found out a couple months ago, some of you referred to me as Guitar Josh. Um, And so I I preface, uh, anytime I give a message, I always preface it with this. I'm going to try really hard not to play air guitar or to reset to my Sunday morning default position, which I shared with you last time, is this, right? Without a guitar, I do not know what to do with my hands. And, and there's this other part that I haven't shared yet, but I want to confess to you. I feel like my midsection is so exposed if I don't have a guitar strapped to my body. So here it is. Take a good look. You may not see it again for a while. Uh, <clears throat> But uh, as we were saying, we have one announcement this morning, and that's our Thanksgiving outreach will be happening Wednesday afternoon. Uh, If you have any questions about that, want to know how you can get plugged in, how you can serve, just literally talk to anybody. Um, We have this incredible opportunity this week as the church to take the gospel into our city and point others to the glory of God and also feed them. Uh, So if you've been with us, you know, for the past couple of months, you'll know that we're in the middle of a series titled, That's Messed Up. We've been looking at stories in the book of Genesis in order to highlight the mess that sin creates. And this isn't because we as a church, we love to be negative or masochistic. It's, it's not because of that. It's because Jesus teaches us there's a great benefit to being honest about our own sin. And if, if we understand and we see our sin for what it really is, it will cause us to cherish the gospel, to cherish Christ more. And if we understand how desperately we need to be rescued from our sin, we'll come to understand just how glorious the news of the gospel is. And so this morning, we're going to use Genesis 11 as a starting point to talk about pride. Right? And here is my hope as we examine the sin of pride, we will come to see that ultimately we all need to be saved from ourselves. You see, we were created in the image of God, right? We were created as his image bearers. We were created, we were designed to be mirrors that reflect the glory of God. We were ultimately created for worship. I heard a a story recently uh, that I wanted to share about a a six-year-old boy who's scheduled to have heart surgery, terrible circumstances. During the pre-op, the surgeon comes into the room and he sits down next to the boy's bed, right next to his parents. And the surgeon looks at the boy and he says, tomorrow morning, I'm going to open up your heart. And the boy interrupted the surgeon. He said, you'll find Jesus there. And the surgeon, a little annoyed at being interrupted, right? he continued, I'm going to cut your heart open and see how much damage has been done. The little boy said quickly once again, but when you open up my heart, you're going to find Jesus there. And the surgeon just looks at the parents, ignoring the boy now. When I open up his heart 
and see how much damage has been done, then we'll know how to proceed. We'll know what to do next. And the boy, he can't help himself. But you'll find Jesus in my heart. The Bible says he lives there. You're going to find him. I know you will. And the surgeon, having worked a long day, looked at the little boy and was super blunt. Do you know what I'm going to find there? I'm going to find damaged muscle, low blood supply, weakened vessels. But I'll find out if I can make you well again. Once again, the boy adamantly says, you will find Jesus there. He lives there. Fast forward, after surgery, the surgeon, he's sitting in his office and he's notating the surgery procedure. And he writes, diagnosis, damaged aorta, damaged pulmonary vein, widespread muscle degeneration, no hope for transplant. No hope for a cure. Therapy, he writes, painkillers and bed rest. Prognosis, and he paused. Death within one year. He took a deep breath and he he sat back in his chair and he cried aloud, why? Why would you do this? God, you put him here. You're the one who put him through all this pain. You've cursed this child to an early death. Why, God? And the Lord knelt down and whispered to the surgeon, the boy was not meant to live long on this earth. He belongs to me. And soon he will be with me forever. And his tears start rolling down the surgeon's face. He cried out in anger, God, you created that boy. You created his damaged heart. He'll be dead in months. Why, God? And the Lord replied, I sent that boy for you. I sent that boy for you and to make you one of my children just like he is. So later that evening, the surgeon goes into the little boy's room and sits next to the boy's bed. As the little boy, he stirs from the anesthesia, and he weakly says, Did you cut open my heart? Yes, said the surgeon. What did you find? asked the little boy. The surgeon replied, I found Jesus there. I found Jesus. You see, every single one of us, we were created in the image of God. Every single one of us were created to reflect the glory of God. And as New Testament believers, living in this dispensation of grace, it's our God-given mandate and our joy, church, to put the glory of Christ on display for all to see. So this morning... The question I want to ask you is this. If your heart was cut open this morning, what would you find? If your heart was cut open this morning, what would you find? 
We know, of course, that we'd find valves and veins and and ventricles, but my question for us this morning is, who would you find there? Who sits on the throne of your heart? It's not a question of biology or anatomy. It's It's a question, ultimately, about worship, right? Whose glory are you reflecting Whose glory are you displaying to the world? Who do you worship with your life? Who sits on the throne of your heart? And church, our answer to this question is a matter of life and death. And there is only one sufficient answer. It's the very person we just sang about moments ago. He is loving beyond your widest boundaries. He is holy beyond your deepest fears. Powerful beyond your wildest fantasies. Gracious beyond your profoundest needs. Forgiving beyond your ugliest sin. He is incomprehensible, inscrutable, inexhaustible, irreducible, immeasurable. He cannot be contained. He is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and he is always good. There has never been, nor will there ever be a person so worthy of your entire adoration, admiration, affection, and allegiance. And while there is no other human being that will ever live up to the expectations that you have for them, your expectations of him will always, always be exceeded. He merits all that you are and therefore appropriately asks for all that you are. And his name is Jesus Christ. We were created by him, through him, and created to worship him. He alone must sit on the throne of our hearts, no one else. So this morning, we're going to look at the sin of pride, right? Pride, it's this glory thief. It's this worship killer. And it's my hope that we'll see just how absurd, how dangerous, how outright treasonous it is to have anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ himself sitting on the throne in our hearts. And I pray as as we continue that you come to see the glorious news of the gospel. There is hope for messed up, prideful, sinful, dying men, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, will you please turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, God, what a privilege it is to gather together as the body of Christ this morning. What a joy it is to lift one voice and proclaim one name, the name of Jesus Christ. The name above every other name. Father, how sweet it is to sing those words and exalt the name of Christ. But how hard it is to live them out. We are so prone to wander, so prone to forget, so quick to exchange your truth for our paltry lies. And God, we end up worshiping and serving us as human creatures instead of you, our creator. Our sinfulness, our pride, it has usurped you from the throne in our hearts We've exalted ourselves in your rightful place. And Father, we need to repent of this. We ask now that you give us eyes to see our own mess. God, give us eyes to see this cosmic treason that we've committed against you. We long to hear your voice. Father, speak to us now. Convict Clarify and convert. Do what you will. Help us to see Jesus Christ for who he really is. Savior, King, and Lord. The only one worthy of glory. Not us, Lord. Not us. May our time together this morning glorify him and him alone. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Can I be uh, honest with you this morning? Um, I'm, a little, I'm a little pessimistic this morning. Uh, and anyone who really knows me is not surprised at all by that statement. <laughs> but follow me here, right? I've been preparing this week to, to preach a message on pride, and I keep coming back to this thought. Who really needs to hear a message on pride? But it's the proud people, right? And if you're proud, are you going to listen? You know, I mean, it's, it's frustrating, right? The people who need to hear a message on pride are probably the first ones to lean back and say, well, this isn't for me. Why do I have to listen to this guy wearing tight pants? That's not me. I'm not arrogant. I'm not prideful. But it's, it's just like we see in Scripture, right? Jesus confronts the Pharisees so often, and they are the ones who need to hear it the most. 
But they, they just won't listen. They don't have ears to hear. And the last thing we want to be like is the Pharisees, right? Because we see God really was against those people. Jesus was pretty blunt with them. A brood of vipers? That's pretty harsh. But it's because they didn't listen. And they were the ones that needed to hear his voice the most. Their pride got in the way. And so there's a part of me that comes to this sermon with a sense of pessimism, right? Well, the proud people in the room, they probably aren't going to listen. And so I've, I've prayed, I've prayed all week and I've asked God, God, speak to your people. Give them ears to hear. Use this vessel, use this voice to proclaim your truth. And so I ask this morning, would you please, just, just please, just, just be open. Just be open to considering the possibility that you are proud. Would you just be open to the possibility that maybe you are the most arrogant, prideful person in this room and that you need this message more than anyone else. Can we be open and honest with ourselves like that? Can we say, okay, okay, I'm open to the possibility that I am totally proud. And let me just say, if you can't be open to that, you are proud. We'll just solve that for you right now. Pride is such a difficult topic. But in this ironic twist, I feel pretty qualified to speak on pride because I'm the proudest person that I know. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'll all come to that same conclusion, that we all covet glory. In the fall of 1942, C.S. Lewis was asked, what is the greatest sin? What sin is worse than every other? And his response was this. Tad has shared this before. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in other people. It's the essential vice, the utmost evil. It's pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that, they are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Here's, here's the thing about pride that I've been wrestling with. People don't take it seriously. Nobody talks about pride like that anymore. In fact, we live in a world where pride is celebrated, isn't it? It's encouraged. We call it self-esteem. Love yourself. Build yourself up. Believe in yourself. You can do it. We don't see it as an awful sin. But listen to what the Word of God says in Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. 
There's no room for misinterpretation there. God says, those who are proud, God says, I can't even look at them. They are an abomination to me. He detests pride. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to be a man that God looks at and says, he's so into himself. He draws so much attention to himself. He's so concerned with his own glory that he's detestable in my sight. I mean, who wants that? Nobody wants God to look at them that way. But we don't see pride as such an awful sin like God does. Francis Chan, he really put this into perspective for me. He said, when somebody confesses pride, everybody kind of just nods and says, well, yeah, who, I mean, who doesn't, right? But, but what if I came up here this morning and I said, Guys, I've, I've really been struggling with lust lately. He goes on to say, it's, it's, it's so bad, it's to the point that, that what if I confessed? I've been really checking a lot of you out lately. Almost everyone in the church would walk out in disgust, right? It really puts it into perspective, right? We, we look at certain sins, like lust, and we rightfully so, we call it disgusting, but if I come up here and say, I struggle with pride, I'm the proudest person I know, it's not that big of a deal, but it should be. God hates pride. So let's take this thing seriously. Every day, you and I, we have a choice. Every morning, we wake up as human beings created in the image of God, designed to worship it's like we're all mirrors, right? Designed and created to reflect God's glory. And every day we should be reflecting the glory of Christ, right? Pointing people, telling people, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Look how glorious he is. That's what our posture should be. Don't look at me, look at him. Church, that's what we were created for, to bring God glory, to exalt the name of Jesus. But so often, we take our mirrors and we do what? We turn them around and right? we point them back to ourselves. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. We want to draw attention to ourselves. And it's not necessarily that we all have these gigantic egos, well, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, Josh, I don't really think I'm that great. But you can still be prideful. You can still struggle with humility because you'll do something like this. Look at me. Look how pitiful I am. Look how awful I am. Look how ugly I am. Talk about me. Look at me. It's still drawing attention to me. You see, pride is self-obsession. Pride is a worship problem. It's saying, look at me, give me glory. I'm worthy of attention. I deserve it. And this is what we see in Genesis 11. We see the pride of men on full display. And so right up front, I want to give you a definition of pride for us to use as we move forward. Pride is the innate Sinful desire to glorify ourselves instead of God. Pride is the innate 
sinful desire to glorify ourselves instead of God. So with with that as our definition, let's look back and key in on verse 4 of Genesis 11. It's, It's the real crux of the people's pride at Babel. Verse 4, and then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Very rarely in the Bible do we get such a clearly articulated purpose statement. We hardly ever see the intentions of man's heart stated as plainly as we do here. But the people of Babel, they just lay everything out on the table, don't they? Here's why we're doing this. Here is our purpose. And we see that it's, it's threefold, right? Number one, they wanted to build a city and a tower that reached into the heavens. And secondly, they, they wanted to make a name for themselves. And the last reason that they give is they did not want to be dispersed. So let's break these down one by one here. All right, number one, they wanted to build a city and a tower that reached into the heavens. At first glance, that might seem like a great thing, right? Look, they're, they're trying to get closer to God. How wonderful is that? That is not what they're doing here. They're not saying, let's build this tower so we can get closer to God. Won't it just be great to just be a little closer to him? That's not what they're doing. They're building this tower so they can become equal with God. Think back to creation in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 and Genesis 11, they go hand in hand, right? That's the first section of the book of Genesis. If you remember back to Genesis 1, God puts Adam over everything. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, being Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth, right? God creates Adam and God gives Adam the domain of earth. God creates mankind and gives him the most privileged of all positions on earth. But he says, Adam, your domain is here. It's on earth. It's not in heaven. But the builders say, it's not enough. Let's get up there. Let's make ourselves equal with God. They're trying to become equal with him. And even further, right, they say, let us make a name for ourselves. So number two, let us make a name for ourselves. In in ancient times, names were much more significant than they are today. Today, your name is what other people call you, and that's really about it. My name is Josh Davidson. That's what I respond to. But other than that, it doesn't really mean a whole lot of anything. Let's use my own name, and then I know I'm in trouble. Um, But in the Old Testament... A name was everything. Your character, your behavior, your worldview, everything was wrapped up in your name. And so when these people say, let us make a name for ourselves, what they're really saying is, let's define ourselves. Let us define who we are without God's input. But think back to the creation mandate again. 
Right? In Genesis 1, we see that God is the one who names Adam. God alone reserves the right to name his creation. And God doesn't shortchange Adam. He says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. I'm going to give man the most prized spots in all of creation, but I'm the one who gets to name him. And so God creates Adam from the dirt, yet places him above everything else on the earth. This is who you are, God says. This is your name. It means from the earth. I've given you dominion over everything. I've made you a vice regent over all creation. I've taken you from the very dust of the earth, and I've set you on top over everything. But how does Adam respond? Serpent whispers, eat the fruit, and your eyes will be opened. Then you will be like God. And so Adam gives in to pride. In his actions, he says, you know what? It's not enough. I want more glory. I want to name myself. I want to have my own dominion. And so he takes a bite. And the people of Babel, they come to that same sad conclusion. It's not enough. We want to name ourselves. We are going to be the ones that define our place in the world. It's about us. You see, if their building up to heaven was to make themselves equal with God, then their making a name for themselves is an attempt to become their own God. They're trying to replace God and say, we're going to be the ones to do the naming around here. Not you, God. It's going to be us. And we're going to choose what our domain is. But they don't just stop there, right? They say one more thing that may seem a little strange. Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It seems like a really strange reason for building a tower. Unless, of course, you have the bigger picture in mind. As we read through Genesis, or really any portion of the Bible, we need to always be zooming out and thinking about the bigger picture. right? Redemptive history as a whole. Why would they desire to not be dispersed? God's people dwelling in unity seems like a great thing, right? But not here. Not here. And it's because of the mandate that we keep coming back to that God gives to Adam and by proxy all of us. Go, fill the earth with God's glory. This is your mission, mankind. This is what I've created you to do. Fill the earth with the glory of God as his image bearers. As his creatures created and designed to reflect his glory and put it on display for the whole world to see. But here, the builders, they're saying, we don't want to align with God's plan. We don't want to take his glory to the ends of the earth. We want to build a tower so everybody else will see our glory. We want to do our own thing. And so they first try to make themselves like God by building a tower to heaven. And then they try to supplant God by saying, we'll, we're the ones going to be doing the naming around here. 
And then third, they, they try to thwart God. They try to foil his plans. With crossed arms and outright disobedience, they say, we're not going. Thanks for this life you've given us, God. But we'll take it from here. We're going to decide who we are. We're going to define ourselves. Because we figured out that we know what's best. The whole world is going to see just how glorious the men of Babel are. And the sin here is just tragic. It's messed up. They usurp God's throne and place themselves on it. And here we see the essence of pride. It's this problem of glory thievery. Pride is the innate sinful desire to glorify ourselves instead of God. Pride is saying to God, thanks God, but I'll take it from here. I know what's best. I'll decide what I was created for. And we all come to that same conclusion as the builders when we say, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to decide my own destiny. I know what's best for me. I don't need to read or pray. I've got it under control. When we do that, we are telling ourselves and the world, I'm the only one deserving of any glory. Thanks for giving me this life, God, but I know what's best. Theologian Daniel Hawks puts it this way. The basic human problem is that everyone believes there is a God, but believes they are it. As human beings who were created and designed for worship, every single one of us, whether you are Christian or not, we all have this innate desire to glorify something. Worship, by definition, is to ascribe worth to something or someone. We have been hardwired for worship. But the reality is, every single one of us, at some point in our lives, comes to the same conclusion that the builders did. And we decide the thing that we should worship, the thing that we should glorify, is us. We place ourselves on the throne. But it is a throne that is reserved exclusively for Christ. You see, pride is our greatest enemy because it makes God our enemy. Pride is so repulsive, he calls it an abomination. He detests it because pride contends for supremacy with him. In James 4, it says, God opposes the proud. God opposes those who are prideful because when we well up with pride, when we say, I'm going to do it myself, I'm going to make my own name, we're calling ourselves God, contending for supremacy with God himself. And pride is, is not just another sin, right? It's, it's the deadliest sin, and it's in a category all by itself. Other sins, adultery, murder, greed, sloth, all of those sins lead us farther away from God. But pride, instead of pushing us further away from God, pride lifts us up above God. 
Pride elevates and exalts the sinner above the Savior. It contends with him, opposes him. It places us in his rightful place. And therefore, pride makes God our enemy. But pride is more than that, if that's not bad enough already. Pride is not just a sin. It's a sinful mother. It gives birth to even more sins. Pride is the soil in which all other sins sprout up and grow. Take lying, for example. You're so proud that you can't admit you were wrong or that you did something wrong, and so what? You lie because you're proud. But the problem of pride is even bigger than that. It's not, that, it's not just that it puts you above God. It's not that it just leads to other sins like lying. It's that pride itself is a lie from the devil. Pride lies to us and says, we really should spend all of our time thinking about ourselves. Pride is self-obsession, self-fixation, self-exaltation. It's a preoccupation with me. And it changes the way that we see the world, right? We believe the lie that everything should revolve around me, and so we live like it does. And that's a lie. That's not the truth of God. And Romans 1 says, this pride, this pride that makes you an enemy of God will destroy you. Romans 1, 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because... They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Pride will destroy you. Pride is deadly and it will destroy you and therefore it has to die. Pride needs to die in us for anything of heaven to live in us. And if you've lived a single day on this earth, you know how hard it is to spot pride in yourself, don't you? We're so great at seeing pride in other people. We can smell it from a mile away. And we hate it in other people. We detest it. We can't stand to be near it. The moment I said pride... Most of you brought to mind one person, right? There's one person on your mind. They're self-obsessed. They're self-centered. They're always me-deep in conversation. But when it comes to ourselves, we're totally blinded by it. 
And if you can't see it, how can you kill it? Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. And Jonathan Edwards famously said that pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. Let me give you an example. Just enter into my mind for a second. It's a pretty scary place to be. Uh, And if you don't believe me, you can just ask my wife. Here's a conversation that I might have with myself, right? Man, that meeting went really well. I think think maybe the turning point was when I asked that question that no one else had thought of. When I said that one thing or I did that one thing, that meeting went pretty well, didn't it? Probably because of me. Wouldn't have gone so well if I wasn't there. Oh, shoot, wait a minute. I need to repent of that. That was such a prideful thought. I'm such a proud person. I hate how prideful I can be. And so I go to the Lord and I repent. And not even three seconds later, I'm sitting there thinking, and I'm pretty great at fighting the sin of pride. I'm so glad I caught that prideful thought. I wonder if other people are as aware of their own pride. I wonder if other people fight it as hard as I do. Probably not. Here we are again, right? It just happened again. I am prideful about my awareness of my own pride. And if pride is an obsession with ourselves then we cannot defeat pride by becoming obsessed with how well we are fighting against it. Have you noticed that God in his wisdom, he's designed the human body so that we can neither pat ourselves on the back nor kick ourselves too easily. And with pride, one of those two things always happens. We either fall into self-exaltation where we take credit for our success and we pat ourselves on the back and then we become self-promoters. We shove those successes in other people's faces so they will come to see how glorious we really are. Look at me. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look at my glory. But the reverse of that is also true. We can fall into pride by self-demoting ourselves, self-degradation, We beat ourselves up over our failures. Look at me. Look how pitiful I am. But in both cases, we're utterly and totally obsessed with ourselves. We take that mirror that we've been given to reflect the glory of God and we point it back at ourselves for good or for bad. We're either obsessed with our success or obsessed with our failures but it's always an obsession with ourselves. The way we kill pride is not to obsess more. Think about ourselves more. We kill pride through humility. If pride is our greatest enemy, then humility is our greatest ally in the fight. If pride is our greatest enemy, then humility is our greatest ally. And I think we really come to terms with how dangerous pride is when we see what real humility is. C.S. Lewis, once again, said, True humility is not thinking less 
of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. The problem with pride is not whether we think high thoughts or low thoughts about ourselves. It's not that we think good or bad about ourselves. The problem is that we think lots of thoughts about ourselves. It's a worship problem. We begin to worship ourselves. We place ourselves on the throne. Everything revolves around me. Pride is a self-fixation, but humility, the way that we kill pride, is self-forgetfulness. True humility sets you free because when you think about yourself less, you're free to think about Christ more. Pride, it puts us on the path of opposition with God. It makes us an enemy with God. But humility, true humility, puts us on the path of grace. So how do we kill pride in ourselves? How do we kill something that's so hard to see? Humility. True humility is the killer of pride. But how in the world do we humble ourselves? The first thing that we must do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and your pride will be obliterated. It cannot stand before the cross of Christ. Seeing the cross rightly means that we see ourselves rightly. We see Jesus on the cross and we realize that it's our sin that put him there. The cross reveals what we deserve and it's not glory. It's condemnation. For the wages of our sin is death. Our cosmic treason, our sin, our pride, it separates us from God. And we cannot receive or see the grace of Christ apart from seeing and embracing the undeserved disgrace of Christ on the cross. Look to Jesus. There is hope for proud men. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, even your self-obsession, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Hebrews 12.2 puts it this way. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jason Meyer says, The collision between the glory of God and the pride of man has two possible crash sites. It's hell or it's the cross. Either we will pay for our sins in hell or Christ will pay for our sins on the cross. And church, once we look to Christ, once we look to Jesus and we behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, we come to realize just how absurd it is that we've placed ourselves on the throne. When it's our sins that put Jesus on the cross. When we look to the cross, 
We should be ashamed of our pride. Because Scripture tells us that Jesus, the Son of God Himself, humbled Himself for our sake. How can we stand and be prideful when we see the cross? But it doesn't stop there. We can't just see it and do nothing, right? So we look to Jesus, and then secondly, we step down from the throne. Pride is a glory dysfunction. It's a glory thief. It's a lie that says, we, I, me, I'm worthy of worship and glory. But church, we are not worthy or glorious. We are ugly, messed up, sinful, broken, and in desperate need of a Savior. You cannot be your own Savior. Step down from the throne. As one modern theologian penned, sit down, be humble. (laughs) We must surrender the throne of our hearts to Christ. There is only one worthy to sit on the throne, Jesus Christ. John 3.30, it should be everybody's life verse. He must increase, but I must decrease. I was talking to a dear brother a few weeks ago who said something so profound. He said, the essence of the Christian life is figuring out how to get yourself out of the way. Get out of your own way. Step down from the throne. We must decrease so that Christ will increase in us. Look to Jesus and step down from the throne. The kingdom of God has no place for proud people. There is only room for those who come to the humble conclusion that Christ alone is Savior, King, and Lord, and the only one worthy of glory. And once we come to that conclusion, once we look to Jesus, once we step down from the throne, our response then is to boast in the cross. The Bible's answer to our fallen, self-obsessed pride is the great work of grace at the cross. It turns our self-obsession, this fixation about me, and it turns into a worshipful obsession with God. It's a fixation on God's glory, not my own. And 1 Corinthians 1 gives us a reminder, a gentle, gentle reminder. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Once we look to Jesus, once we step down from the throne and we start boasting in the cross, we start to cry out Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Church, we must look to Jesus. We must step down from the throne, vacate the throne so that Jesus may take it. He's the only one worthy of it. And then boast in the cross, boast in the king. There is one gospel to which I cling. All else I count as loss. For there where justice and mercy meet, he saved me on the cross. No more I boast in what I can bring. No more I carry the weight of sin. For he has brought me from death to life. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So once again, I ask you, who sits on the throne in your heart? Is it you? Are you the one sitting on the throne? Or is it Jesus Christ? Is it the Son of God who wrapped himself in flesh, humbled himself, became obedient to the will of the Father, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place, and then rose again? Is it Jesus Christ who sits on the throne in your heart? If you look inside and you see that it is not him, I beg you, I plead with you, look to Jesus. There is hope for proud people at the cross. Look to Jesus. And once you do, there's nothing else to do but step down from your throne and boast on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, God, humble us. Father, empty us. We're so full of ourselves, just like the builders. We want to build a tower into heaven. We want to make ourselves equal with you. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to become our own gods, decide our own domains, decide what's best for us. But God, you have given us a mandate. You have given mankind a mission. Go, multiply, fill the earth with your glory. Father, we are so consumed with our own glory when we should be obsessed with yours. Father, turn our eyes to Jesus. We want to exalt him and him alone. We want to go out into the world and make his glory known. Father, take these mirrors that we point at ourselves and and point them to the cross so that other people may know that there is hope, there is life, there is salvation, and there is forgiveness at the cross. 
Not us, Lord. Not us, but your glory alone. Use us, Father. We long to be empty vessels filled by your Spirit, empowered to go and make disciples of all nations. Father, help us to reflect your glory instead of ours. We need your help. Help us to abide and help us to obey. Help us to look to Jesus. It's in his beautiful, incredible, wonderful name that we pray. Amen.